0: Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you this morning as we continue to worship. Uh, Yes, it is so good. I agree with you. Our second, second epistle lesson is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6 and reading through verse 19. I invite us now to hear these words of Paul. Of course, there is great gain and godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And in their eagerness to be rich, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. But as for you, man of God, shun all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty, or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of the life that really is life. May God bless the reading of the Word. Thanks be to God. I want to take just a moment and recognize Rob and Patty Mock. If you will just stand and let us greet you and welcome you here at Ashland Place. You made a powerful presentation during the 10 o'clock hour and we look forward to hearing more about your ministry and your mission in the world and look forward to how we can partner with you in this ministry and journey. You know, we are in this wonderful little sermon series and we're coming to a close this week as we have been considering games that children play. You know, we, 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 we talked about how um, symbolic play Um, helps children grow and mature and develop their creativity as their imagination grows and matures. As a child, an infant will pick up a truck, a toy truck, and make the sounds of that truck as they roll across the rug. They're replicating what they experience in the world. They're learning about their world. Later as they grow a child will take an inanimate object, a, a piece of wood, a block, anything and begin to make the noises of that truck because their, their creativity has grown. Their sense of symbolic play has developed where this block becomes just a symbol for a truck, a symbol for something within their world as they continue to grow in their world and understand their world symbolic play is important as the child and as people continue to grow they continue to mature in their in how they play eventually we begin to have our friends with us and we climb into a box and we explore many worlds throughout space in our makeshift spaceship just a refrigerator box But we learn in that kind of play, how to cooperate, how to share, how to live together, work together, create together, and play together, to live together. All this is important. And we've been kind of, kind, of, kind of searching that out in this sermon series as we have considered these very simple uh, games that children play. We, we began with hide and seek and we played hide and seek here in this room and we hid in the four corners and we began to think about how, how as we hide in this room, we hide from God and God seeks us, searching us out and finds us so he can redeem us, renew us and save us from ourselves searches out the darknesses in the four corners of the earth for us. When we are found, when we are found, our response is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The love, the grace, the forgiveness, and the mercy of God revealed and experienced through Christ. And so we do that like a telephone game. Like Kristen led us last week in the telephone game. We, we share the message, the proclamation, and we pray that proclamation. We pray for one another. We live life with one another. We continue to play with one another, and we lift each other up. Today, we're going to try to play a game again. This one's King of the Mountain. Have you ever played King of the Mountain? Some people call it King of the Hill When I was a child, a very small child, my dad would take me and a couple of friends and he would drive us just a few miles away to this little town called Woodville. It was called Woodville because there was a large mill there. And all that was remaining, all that remained of that mill that I can remember was this huge mountain of wood chips and sawdust. That's all I really remember about it because that's where my dad would take us and we would spend hours playing king of the mountain on this huge mountain of wood chips. Now, the more violent the game became, the better it was. Because that's what little boys do. And, and as I learned, that's what little girls do too. It was phenomenal. By the time we would get home, we would be covered in wood chips and, and in our clothes. I mean, we were just, you didn't even come in the house. You just got hosed off outside, and then you would come in. Because you just reeked of, wood, of, wood, of sawdust, and we're just covered. But what a great memory, what a great experience to be able to climb this mountain, to knock somebody off the top, to take their place, and to be the king of the king of the hill, king of the mountain, top of the heap, old number one. Just as old blue eyes, Frank Sinatra singing. But there's something in that game that can teach us something about life. Someone invite us to play a little game of king of the mountain. I'm going to ask everybody to stand up. And I'm going to ask you a series of questions, and as you can no longer answer that question, you're going to sit down, because you've been knocked off the top. Right now, we're all on the top of the mountain. We're making our way up there together for that vista, that beautiful view. So I want you to think about how many keys you have on your person. In your pocket, in your pocketbook, a backpack, whatever, diaper bag, wherever you carry your keys. And if you have more than two keys, you can remain standing. Everybody else needs to sit down. Alright, so those with one key or less are sitting down. If you have three keys or more, you can remain standing. If you have five keys or more, you can remain standing. If you have visited more than three states in the United States, you can remain standing. Good job. If you've been to more than ten states in the United States, you can remain standing. If you've been to more than fifteen states, you can remain standing. If you've had more than two speeding tickets in your life... You can remain standing. Yeah. Yeah, how's the top of the mountain look now? <laughs> if you've had more than three speeding tickets, you can remain standing. <laughs> Jill Parker, you're the winner. You're on top of the mountain. <laughs> It's an interesting game, King of the Mountain. I just want to say thank you for um, indulging me in these games we've been able to play and let our imagination wander and let the Spirit lead us in these games. That maybe we can learn something about ourselves and our relationship with one another and our relationship with God. You know, in this passage we just read, and we've been reading through 1 Timothy now for three weeks, and along the way, we have been listening to Paul write a personal letter to his friend and his colleague, Timothy. He's been writing as his mentor, as his colleague, a partner in ministry. He's been encouraging Timothy. He's been giving Timothy warnings about life in the church and the dangers that the church faces in the world around it. Now, our world is a little different than what Timothy and Paul faced. Historically and culturally, it's different. But it's not that different. And as we think about Paul's letter, and he writes, as he's writing Timothy, he's giving Timothy some very dire warnings. In chapter 4, we heard Sidney read that that, uh, Paul saying, Timothy, don't let anybody... Keep you underfoot, it puts you down because of your age or your youth. Because you have you have plenty to teach people. You, you have been called by God to lead people, to be a leader in the church. And no one of any age can say anything about that. And then he begins to write Timothy about the the pitfalls that the church in Ephesus this is where Timothy was was located this is where Timothy was working now Ephesus was a fairly um, well-to-do city it was a wealthy city and probably the church reflected that wealth as there were some people of wealth and some people of means and some people who They didn't have the means. They weren't wealthy. They were quite poor. In fact, there were were slave owners in in that church, and there were slaves in that church. There were wealthy and poor. There were Gentiles and Jews. There was a wide mix of people in this church in Ephesus. And Paul lifted up this beautiful and powerful image of the church as this body of Christ made of many members And he held on to that image and he passed it along to Timothy and all those whom he worked with because he had this incredible understanding that we are different. The different members of the church, we're different, but together we make one body. And the value of the different members, it gets washed away. When When we leave the world outside the doors of the church and we begin to move into the community of the church... No longer is there slave or free. No longer is there male or female. No longer is there Gentile or Jew. No longer is there wealthy or poor. But we're all one. We're all seen together. We are all appreciated the same. We're all worth the same. But Paul knew and Timothy knew that when we leave the doors of that church... We enter a world that doesn't, see that doesn't see these divisions the same way. The world is compartmentalized. The world places value on people and where they're from. In this time, Paul and Timothy lived in a, in a world that valued honor. Honor for self, honor of our family, honor of the legacy that our family will leave. Honor was the most important thing. And you climbed the mountain of honor with everything you have. You made every sacrifice you needed to make to climb this mountain of honor. And you did everything in your power to avoid any semblance of shame. Because shame cast a shadow Upon you, and your family, and all of your descendants. Shame was to be avoided at all costs. Paul and Timothy knew this. Paul and Timothy saw the church at work, saw its members at work, not only in the church. But they saw it working outside the church. In the community. And Timothy and Paul... Both saw the church come unglued and began to define itself by slave versus owner, by wealth versus poverty, by Gentile versus Jew. And they began to live that way in their communities because the world expected it. And Paul warns Timothy, don't let that life, those divisions, live and thrive in your church. Because Timothy saw people climbing mountains, he saw people building their own mountain, mountains about honor, mountains that are built, supposedly built out of self sufficiency. My own device, my own means, my own honor, for my family's honor, for my household. I climb the mountain hand over hand and foot over foot, and whoever's under me is too bad. Paul began to see that mentality creep into the church. And he knew that as as the faithful began to follow their call, their own call, not God's call, their call, to build themselves up, to climb their own mountain and begin to rely on their own self-sufficiency, he called it a trap because certainly they will plunge into their own destruction. Paul tells Timothy... Climb the mountain of godliness. Let those who have share. Let all of us share together because we are all have been blessed by God. You see, Paul understood the, the danger of self sufficiency, having an understanding that we are self made. Paul understood there is no such thing as self-sufficiency. That leads to destruction. What, God, what Paul believes in is God's sufficiency. God has provided all that we need. Even if it's mere clothes on our back, that's all we need. Food in our stomach, that's what we need. And that's been a blessing of God. Let, it share, let us share our blessings with the community. Whatever they are. Paul warns Timothy of the danger of climbing the wrong mountain. Because the mountain of self sufficiency, the mountain of honor, is not the same as God's mountain. God's mountain is about sacrifice, God's mountain is built out of sharing out of mercy, out of forgiveness, out of love and grace. God's mountain brings us all up together. So I'm going to ask you one more question. If you have at least one article of clothing on right now, stand up. Church, you are blessed by God. Take your blessings into the world and proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord and God blesses us all. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.